painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to season two, episode one of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs podcast. Today, Jenny and I have a very special guest, Sarah Brown. Sarah, thank you for coming on. Why don't you give us a little bit about your background and then we'll get into the episode. Thank you. It was fortuitous that I had Jenny as a personal trainer um, lately because I've had quite a journey and I hope to be able to wrap up with, with how she's been able to help me, but uh, my story begins when I was a teenager and I got ulcerative colitis. So that is um, autoimmune disease. And so I had the interesting opportunity to kind of deal with chronic illness and chronic pain for the end of high school. And then my college years were very much more like a, um, maybe a senior resident with my pillbox and enemas and whatnot. So I had a unique experience with chronic health and then it all just kept snowballing. I never quite hit um, a plateau. Um, my case kept getting more complicated and I needed to have my large intestine removed in 2006. So I went through a series of surgeries and complications and my personality is of a buoyant type. And so I would face these um, chronic health problems and then these continued developments in my diagnosis, you should say. And I really felt um, my identity shifting. I would always feel disoriented because I was a high achieving, high producing, whatever I was working on or in college type A. And then my body would have these problems and I had to split my mental attention between survival and maintenance and then my drive to achieve and you know really thrive so i noticed in my personal life i always was having this thing going about what challenges do i have how can i do the best that i can do um what barriers is this new development of my health problem to my lifestyle right now and of course that's different from high school through college to getting married and having children, that that changed. Um, But what was consistent about that is that I was always looking for a way to find purpose and meaning with things I couldn't control. And I wouldn't have been able to 
really phrase it like that until the last five years where I came into thought coaching. So um, basically the bottom line is I felt disempowered at each phase of my um, chronic disease development. I felt disempowered when I lost my large intestine. Um, I felt disempowered when I lost most of my intestines last December, but I, I had luckily by last December, I learned that um, the power was in my mind and I had learned a, a, a thought coaching tool called worst case scenario. And that's what really changed this latest experience for me. And that was basically where I had my own coach and about a year before my surgeries, she asked me what my worst case health scenario would be. And so I told her to her and it was gonna, it was a permanent ileostomy bag. I didn't want that more than anything in my life. And I knew it was a threat to me because I had lost pieces of my small intestine and already my whole large intestine. And so what she did is she helped me set up camp there. So she said, okay, let's pretend it's for real. Um, is your life over? And she kept just challenging my belief systems against that biggest fear. And that was one of the first huge moments and shifts that I had. And so basically when the worst case scenario came true, I had worked through a place of thriving in my mind. And so I just went to that and that became my new reality. So I had a tremendously quick resilience process, um, mentally and emotionally. And so um, I really just got on board with thought coaching and just decided that the whole world needed to hear about this, especially those with chronic illness because, or any kind of, um, you know, trial with health that made a person feel disempowered because I thought, wow, if you can take with yourself your human brain, which really doesn't have limitations in, in terms of what you can access inside of yourself for power and for um, innovation in terms of your own resilience and deep rooted self-respect and um, ability to drive your, your own personal character forward in um, endurance, you should say. And I, when I caught hold of that, I thought I've got to share this with the world because we all face things we can't control. And so that's how it's impacted me. And that's what I have been wanting to share with people since then. So Sarah, I, I have to thank you for coming on the show today and thank you for sharing your story. Working with you has really been one of the highlights of my physical therapy career thus far. But I'm really curious, what point led you to looking for something like thought coaching? Did you even know that's what you were looking for when you were looking for it? Or what was that penultimate or ultimate moment that pushed you towards this? The ultimate moment was actually not related to health, but in my personal life, I was finding that I had, I had reached over 10 years of having some of the same triggering, emotionally triggering issues with my own mother. And I had been searching a lot of different tools and philosophies and self-help and um, I came across um, a Buddhist monk that really taught me more about mindfulness. And that's kind of the first place where I realized that I could catch myself in my own being triggered process and find, kind of take a hold there and then do something different for a different outcome. So what happened was I was 
on iTunes podcast and I just searched this lady's name because I thought I just want to hear any any interviews with this um, lady because I want to hear more about um, this idea of, of catching yourself in these mental things. She wasn't saying it like that. Hers was much more eloquent um, with her language. But so I, when I found the podcast where she had been interviewed, one of them was um, the director and owner, creator of the Life Coach School. And so I listened to her talk about Pema Chodron, who's the Buddhist monk. Um, she was talking about her as one of her gurus. So as I was listening, um, Brooke Castillo, she, the way she was talking, like totally clicked in my brain, like she's got extra tools for me. So then it just expanded and I started listening to Brooke's podcast and she is um, a life coach and it's basically thought coaching. And so I just binge listened to her and I made more progress with my relationship with my mother in like two months than I had made in 10 years. And so wow. me saying, where else do I want to apply this? So it became with my daughter and my husband and any place. And then of course, when I landed at my own um, adversity with my own physical health, I had like so much to work on there. And basically, um, Brooke just preaches um, emotional adulthood. And so it's sort of like emotional boot camp. You, you, you realize that you that we all tend to whine a lot and kind of protect ourselves from, you know, a defenseless feeling. But she, she just encourages you to be vulnerable and say, I'm creating this drama. And so she helps you divide what is, what is math in my life and what is drama. And with the math, let's just figure it out. Let's go to new doctors. Let's take notes. Let's do all the left brain stuff. And with this other side, let's do thought training to realize how much power we have with the outcome we have when we know that we, we create our own feelings by the way we're thinking. So what did your training look like as you were going through life coach school? Training was six days, um, six full days in kind of like a big group setting where we um, went through a practicum experience and it was very intensive. And then for about 90 days after that, we got she opened up on her podcast for people to get free coaching. And so we got recorded and um, we had, a, you know, rules to go by because unlike counseling, um, life coaching is more, you're not telling people what to do. You're more help redirecting people to their own mind and helping them make the best decision for themselves. So they had to make sure that before they certified us, that we would never be telling people what to do or, or any kind of that, because we're not experts in that. But what we learned to do the most, which took a lot of practice, was to listen to people talking objectively and then to kind of have a differential diagnosis in our mind in terms of all the tools that we had available to us to ask the right questions, to lead the client, to self-awareness self and understanding in a way that was empowering to them. And even though we couldn't control people's experience, our number one job was to invite them to look at their brain and kind of, it's like going up into an attic where it's been dark and dusty and you bring the flashlight with you and we look at all what's up there and decide what to keep, what to, what to improve on and what to throw out. And um, so we know our job is just to do that, not to gauge our success on whether people have a big shift or, I mean, that's really up to them because you have to be really brave 
to do thought work because you have to be willing to call yourself on your own drama and your own lies and your own, um, you know, all the, the belief systems that you've held on to as evidence for one part or another of your personal story. And so we just, um, we were graded a lot on, you know, not having opinions about people's lives, no judgment, no buy-in, just keeping objective with our questions and redirecting the client back to their own thinking so that they could see what their options were going forward. Sarah, you came to our clinic and you gave a wonderful presentation to our staff. And in that meeting, um, we had a whiteboard and we went through just one of the exercises that you do with people. And I thought that was a really powerful tool that really seemed to, when I went home that day, I was like, hmm, how can I try this? You could really apply it to all aspects of your life. So I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that technique or if there's another technique that you think our listeners might benefit from. Just kind of walk us through what you walked us through that day. Yeah, sure. That day, um, the first thing I always do with people, and this is the same thing as I was saying with the math and the drama, I um, have a framework of initials that represent different words, but basically it helps people to separate when they have a story they're telling about their own lives. It helps them to separate the facts from their thoughts and everything after their thoughts. So um, what I do is I, I put up something like the weather and as that is something like a fact. So you could have 10 people who experience the same weather and then we ask different people. So I'll ask the client like, if you had four people together on a rainy day, what are different things, different ways that each of them may process that in their mind or interpret that? And so, you know, people will say, oh, some would say, this is the best, I love rain. And someone would say like, this is the worst, I was gonna do this after work and now I can't. And someone would have a memory of their childhood and they'd be kind of nostalgic about rain. And then, so once I get them thinking about, for sure, same circumstance, different thoughts, then I kind of show and teach that our thoughts create our emotions and out of our emotions, our emotions are the fuel with which we take action. So if you're feeling motivated, you're going to be different than if you're feeling like overwhelmed. And so, um, so then we just, I start walking them through what thought do you want to choose? What emotion comes up when you let that thought kind of inhabit your brain and what energy, how do you feel in that thought? And then that energy is going to drive an action or an inaction. And then that's going to bring you the result that you live or the consequence of that in your life. And so I just teach that process over and over. And basically, um, they start to see that the person who's going to be thinking like, oh, rain is the worst, is going to have a completely different experience than the person who's saying like, you know, either neutral or positive about the rain. And it doesn't mean that you wanna always be positive, it just is a tool to show that when you move down from the thought line to the feeling, and then the feeling's gonna drive action and the action is gonna end up with a result that you're gonna be personally living, it's gonna be your reality at the end of that thought process, then they can start working backwards and saying like, um, well, for example, we just went on a road trip and so with my kids, for me, knowing that a lot of times things don't go as planned. So before our road trip, we talked about road trip resilience. And I said, what if, you know, our friends get the flu? What if the tire blows in Kansas? What if, 
and we just walk through it because I wanted them to have options in their mind when the thing happened that they didn't expect. And so that that's kind of the same thing as you just teach people to loosen up that like grip they have on what they think things have to be in their mind and they go, oh. And then once you teach that first concept, they start seeing life through a lens of all these options, knowing that whatever they choose to think, as soon as they get that muscle strong enough to be like, oh, I get to choose something in this moment, that that's going to blend into an emotion and an action or an inaction and then their personal results that they'll be living, so. That was a really interesting thing that you said that not every thought has to be positive. I think that reminds me of a book that I read, The Upside of Stress. Sarah, I think you and I talked about it. But in mainstream society, we have this concept of stress is bad. We have to get rid of stress. Like, what can we do to de-stress? And I think that concept that you talk about, that not everything has to be positive, is the same thing as not all stress is bad. Um, In the book, they talk about how there were a lot of studies done, and people that had the least amount of stress in their life were actually the least happy. Um, so tell us a little bit more about why not all thoughts have to be positive. And I think for women in particular, women, and you even spoke to it in your intro- introduction, um, women play so many different roles in now with social media and how people are presenting themselves on social media versus what is reality is very different. And I think there's this expectation that we're supposed to be happy and positive about everything when it sounds like in, in your coaching that that's just not necessarily true. So talk to us about that a little bit. Absolutely. That's one of the best tools that we teach is the concept of 50-50. So we try to even downgrade people to who want like 80% of their life happy to say, why? Like, um, And the reason is because they're all in opposition to each other. So you're not going to know your sadness unless you know your joy anyways. So it's kind of like if you're always striving to be happy and something else comes along, our brains are like, it's, it's like our brains have weather patterns. There's always weather moving through. So when you kind of have that feeling of something, um, if you feel like you have to change that, then you're not getting the experience of the awareness of what that's bringing to you. Um, there's a good example of a client I had who always self-sabotaged by overeating. She'd be, she'd be on a plan that she wanted to eat a certain, you know, way, like certain salads and different things. She'd go visit her mom at a nursing home and she would overeat every time. And she'd go to her health coach and say like, I don't know what the deal is. And so when I met with her, she was really sad. She said, I wanted to visit my mom, but she has Alzheimer's and I just get so upset that she's not the mom that she used to be in our conversations. And so I overeat. And so basically I kind of, we went back and as we coached together, she realized that she thought that, um, she didn't want to have the chapter of sadness and loss because she kind of thought that that was reserved for maybe when the mom passed away. So she was just feeling this struggle. But when we um, talked about processing sadness while she talks with her mom, so she trained her thoughts to, she sits across from her mom, her brain says, this looks not like my same mom, but this mom has Alzheimer's and she's thinking and saying different things. And so I know my brain is triggered to think that it is the conversations from before, but it's not. 
I feel very sad that this has happened, but I'm actually really happy to be here at lunch with her. Otherwise, I could stay home and avoid this sad feeling, but she would be alone. And I'd rather face this pain. And it was kind of, it's the difference between clean negative emotions and dirty ones in terms of like clean pain is where you're facing it, you're understanding it, you see its place in your life. And for her, she didn't want to be coached into joy about her mom's Alzheimer's. She wanted to feel pain and sadness because that's kind of like what had her heart and compassion. She really wanted to process that, but she thought that it meant somehow she was fast forwarding it to her mom's death or it had to be associated with the heaviness. So when she learned how to have clean pain coexisting with the joy of spending, you know, the last few months eating lunch with her mother, she was able to eat on her plan and have it all going on at the same time. And so I think that the pressure we put on ourselves to, you know, be cheerful, be optimistic, it's like, um, it's just like urges with eating. It's like a, a beach ball. If you're always trying to keep that beach ball underneath the swimming pool, it's going to pop up when you're not paying attention. So learning to process negative emotion is critical to having a clean mental hygiene because you you aren't just trying to like stuff the beach ball down the whole time you're you're you know working and playing and having relationships you're actually like this is what it is i'm seeing it for what it is i'm not hiding it that it can sit right next to me while i also feel these other complex human emotions and that just turns out better for everyone so we really try to say Let's be more complex than this. Let's not just choose cheerful, happy all the time because we're denying ourselves the, the richness of the human experience and also trying to pretend things aren't that really are and that just ends up causing a lot of grief later. So Sarah, I wanna go to your health journey now, particularly in the past year since you had more of your small intestine removed. What I know that you went through physical ups and downs, mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to know how the, the thought and the emotional ups and downs went along with that, but how did you utilize the tools that you teach other people to handle the situation that was in front of you, being the high achiever that you talked about, but also having a very serious um, medical thing happen to you? Um, yeah, I learned to embrace sobriety in terms of that's what it looked like for me to start embracing the 50, the quote unquote 50% negative in my life, um, is just to be able to be sober, but also to be, um, I guess, committed to looking at what is still possible for me. I remember waking up after one particular surgery a few years back. Um, where I had a temporary ileostomy. And the last thing my surgeon said to me is, I promise you won't wake up with this like ileostomy. And so when I woke up in the um, recovery room and I felt this pain on my side and I felt it and I was like, oh no, I knew that that had happened. And that was only a temporary one anyway. And I already knew that, but I remember thinking, I was, I remember exactly looking at a certain clock that was there and just thinking to myself, I really have a choice in this. Like I could go down this whole pitiful thing or I could just like accept the thing right now and then just kind of carry the weight of it with me, but maybe also leave room for who knows what. And so that's kind of a, a pattern of resilience with me is 
What do I need to accept? And how does accepting what I can't change leave room for other things to come in that really give life back? In other words, um, I could pull my personality back in after I gave myself that room to grieve. I ended up journaling about four stages of um, healing that I would go through. And just briefly, those were like a shock phase. So I've been in the ER a lot. I've been rushed to the e like to the OR a lot. I've, I've had these experiences. And so after a certain amount of them, I was like, I need to get a system because this is happening. And every time it feels like the first time. So I decided I'd like to just become good at being a random patient. And so um, I noticed that there was a shock phase where the disorientation just is. So for example, last December when this happened, I knew about um, probably about 2 a.m. when we'd already been at, our, been at our local ER for a while that we were gonna be transferred to a bigger town and hospital. And, um, and just for our listeners, um, Sarah is in Stillwater, Oklahoma with me. So right. um, even though we're a bigger rural hospital, it's still a relatively small hospital compared to like big medical centers in big cities. Yes. So I was transferred to Tulsa. And um, so knowing these phases, I already had them committed to like lifetime memory because it's happened so much, but I allowed myself to go through the shock phase. So in other words, the first two days or three days, I just didn't put any pressure on myself to do anything, but just kind of be all over the place, be really, um, you know, just shocked. Like, how is this going to impact my business? What, you know, who's going to have my kids? Like what in the world's happening? And I knew that, um, you know, like meta analysis, like I could think about my thinking and say, this is just shock happening. Like I have all these questions. There seems to be no answers. Um, there seems to be no plan of like when I'm getting out of here, but that was normal to me. So when you look at my math and my drama, I didn't have a lot of numbers on the math. I didn't know how long I'd be there, what was going on or how many surgeries I ended up having. I just knew that I was in shock and that that was where I was going to be. So I didn't have any extra stress about it. And then there's kind of like a, a coping phase. Coping phase is kind of when you're able to start putting things together as far as like back to life. Like, like I was like, oh, it's almost Christmas. Um, maybe we'll just tell our relatives we're not getting gifts this year because I'm still in the hospital. That's kind of like when your brain can actually take in a little bit more of life again. And so I went through that phase and then, um, then the next one is kind of making sense of it all. Like, okay, so now when I go home and I have all these like tubes coming out, I'm going to need to make these plans and do these things, but I can also still, you know, maybe have groceries delivered or it's like, you can just kind of see the process of um, resilience kind of coming back into my life. And then at the end, my final stage is always when I can take the, the adversity that I've just experienced and use it to either teach or help someone else because I'm so far outside of the trauma of it that I've, like, I've used it now into like, this is now on my health resume. And now I have compassion for those going through the same thing. Now I have all these tools of like endurance and patience and like all, all the things that I've garnered in my character. And I really see that as a stepping stone and an advantage for me because if I don't feel like I'm progressing in some way in my life, then what's the point of living? So um, I got those four stages in and it, each time it happens, I get better and better at being like, this is the stage I'm in. This is what I expect of myself. This is what I don't expect. 
this is what's happening, this is normal, and I kind of feel like I'm making progress even though I might still be sitting in a bed or um, you know, whatever the case may be. And I don't know if you guys have heard of the, the Buddhist metaphor of the second arrow, but there's like this um, metaphor that says that if you're out somewhere and you get shot by an arrow, it's very painful. So the arrow would represent, the first arrow would represent the thing you can't control. So that my first arrow was, you know, my intestines twisting and then bursting open. I couldn't do anything about that. But the second arrow is when you shoot to yourself. So while you're reacting and you're, um, you know, why is this happening to me? What's going on? Which is all very normal. If you don't get a hold of that at some point, like I, like I said, the shock phase, that happens. It just, your brain goes rampant you're scared, like it's just happening. It's just very normal for humans to do that. But at some point, if you can't rein that in, then you're shooting yourself with second and third and fourth and so on arrows, and you're causing that because you, um, you're you so busy resisting the thing that already happened that can't be changed. And so this, this latest time, I had been so far into my, you know, coaching, thought coaching, that I had those tools available. And I would say that I don't think I experienced hardly any second arrows because I kept thinking, okay, I, this is what I'm accepting. It's a permanent ileostomy. It's two and a half weeks. It's now a pick line at home with antibiotics. And I always knew those were the first arrow and I wanted to have as little suffering as possible. So I just worked on accepting and moving forward from that point over and over again. It's amazing to me how much you've trained mental resilience but in working with you in a physical capacity, you are one of the most physically resilient people that I've ever encountered. So it, it really is powerful, the mind-body connection. I think a lot of times in therapy, um, we talk about, you know, the physicality is just one piece of it. Does everybody have a mental component that they need to work through? No, not at all. But I think a lot of people do. And we tend to see people make the most progress when both pieces are being addressed. So I really, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that made you so fun and interesting and fascinating to work with is this concept of resiliency. I think in healthcare, um, we learn about resiliency. Um, I think it's a hard concept to define, but Again, in all interactions that I've had with patients, with friends, with family, if I would go to my dictionary and look up resilience now, I feel like there'd be a picture of Sarah Brown. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, the big shift for me was I've been in physical therapy so much. And even besides that, if I even take out formal physical therapy, the whole thing where I'm slammed down by ulcerative colitis, I'm in my bed three weeks, so whatever workout plan I was doing, I've always exercised because I have a lot of arthritis and things that requires it so I can sleep well and bend over to tie my shoes. <laughs> but I, um, I, I just realized that um, I had started certain workout programs. I did a lot of DVDs at home, P90X and, and those kind of things like way back in the day with Tony Horton, VHS tapes and who knows what since high school. I always thought that the goal was to graduate the tape, the CD program, the DVD program, the 90 day challenge, like, and the biggest shift happened when I realized that's, that's not it. The, the best thing I could ever give myself isn't finishing something, but being willing to start all over again and again. And that that is a huge victory. Once I understood that shift, then every time I got 
bedridden again or hospitalized or had a baby. It was, I just didn't have those second arrows. I could just say, yeah, this thing happened at the moment I am cleared by my doctor to start with day one, phase one on the lowest level of resistance or whatever the program was. Um, I knew that the sooner I could get back to that lowest level, the sooner I'd be back to the higher levels again. And so that's one message I would love to share with people is become a champion of starting over, of being on the ground and picking yourself back up because you will utilize that one skill, the skill that where your, your thoughts say, I'm on the ground again and I was way up here and now I'm down here. But the first step is standing up and getting moving and just one notch ahead. And that one mental shift for me has made it so that every surgery or every sickness after that, I'm like, oh, it's no big deal. Nothing was ruined. I'm just, I learned how to pick myself up again. And so here we go again. And I'm just really good at it now. What advice would you give to people that aren't, that are, that they aren't aware of their thought patterns and they're kind of stuck inside themselves in tunnel vision and focus on the fact like, oh, I can't do this now, or this is my new, how would you, how do you, how do you reach those people? Yeah, that's mainly my main clients is that exact thing. It's usually people with a new diagnosis or a new development in their health issue. And what happens is just a complete disorientation. So one of the things I teach is that there's something called indulgent emotions. And our brains do this to protect ourselves from the hard work. <laughs> so we'll feel overwhelmed or we'll feel um, confused or we'll feel disoriented. Like, I don't know who I am. I don't have an identity. I used to be the person who ran the marathons and now I'm trying to like walk at the physical therapist's office. Um, and so one of the first things we work on is um, first we talk about the direction they were going with their previous goals and why that needs to change. I guess I should rephrase it as we talk about what direction they're going and what was motivating that. And it's always comes down to an emotion. Like I want to do this because I wanted to feel strong or I wanted to feel like the top in my whatever. And then we just reframe that for the current, um, Thing that they're doing. So people might say, um, you know, I'll, I'll find an area of their life, like, where have you succeeded where something's been hard, but you've done it on purpose? And people immediately go to like a school program or a job they had. And once they, I hear them tell me the story of how they just buckled down and got to work, they knew it'd be difficult. Then we kind of bring that in and try to superimpose that on their reality today and say, so even though you didn't choose this, what if you chose it right now as like, you're not getting a master's in whatever, but you're getting a master's in this, or you're not trying to reach the, the top of the ladder for this career piece, but you're trying to reach the ladder here. And I really try to bring a familiar place where they've been successful at facing hard things on purpose. And then putting that in their life and helping their brain kind of grasp that and say, okay, here it is. And you'll find that a lot of people are resisting the thing that they can't change. And the reason why is because they don't see their future. 
they, they, they had a vision and then they feel like that vision's altered. And the fact is, is that none of us know if it is or not. Some people, it's pretty clear. If you're paralyzed, you're not going to be running the marathon. But at that point, we talked about why that was a big thing and it always will come. You're always running toward feeling something or running away from feeling something. And so we just really lay it all out and say, you can have the same um, emotions like self-respect, um, the feeling of overcoming or empowerment or I'm gaining ground, I'm learning more. Those are all universal. And be just because they had formerly tied it to a very specific dream, I help them loosen that and then apply it to a new dream. And um, the process takes a while because people have become really glued to an old identity. And so they have to unhook from that and release that in order to create a new one. But um, thought innovation is one of the most creative things a person can do. Even if they're laying in bed, they can be innovative with, why did I have that dream before? What, what did I think it would make me feel when I got there? And what can I replace it with that's actually doable for me? Sarah, would th is this, um, this kind of mental resilience, is it something that once you get, you just get it and apply it to all aspects of your life? Or is it something that like, it is applicable if you intentionally work at it in one domain, but that doesn't mean it's going to translate to another domain, like your relationships versus your health. Is it something you have to be intentional about all, on all different things or once you got it, just you got it? Yeah, the answer is both because the muscle of being becoming aware, especially of your own triggers. Once, like, once I learned, okay, whenever I feel sweaty, annoyed, like this kind of like this package of um, physiology happening, like the sweat and the heart pounding, like, okay, that's either like being really worried or also being triggered by somebody that's making me angry. Um, I have a teenager, so like, I really was able to apply um, my awareness that she was, I was allowing myself to be triggered by her behavior. And when I learned um, to kind of slow down what was happening in my mind, it was this whole backstory of, um, you know, I had these issues when I was young and I was determined to raise a kid different than that. And so these are signals that she hasn't done differently than me. And it was this huge drama. And once I realized that was all just my own backstory of who I thought I needed to be as a mom and who she needed to be as a kid and let it all go. So that transferred very well. At the same time, um, there are very, every person has very specific things that you'll bring your thought tools over and it's almost like starting all over because you've believed that story so hard. Um, every thought you think makes a neural pathway. And if the more you think that thought, the deeper the neural pathway is. And the only way to replace that is to make a new one and make it deeper than the other because your brain prefers efficiency. It will go with the quote unquote deepest neural pathway. And so you have to create a new one and it just takes time and diligence. And um, a good example of, of this is when people say like, I, I am coming to you. I don't know if I need to end my relationship or quit my job. And of course, I'm not there to tell them what to do. But the practice for us is always to say, whatever you do, you need to find peace before you go. Because the drama 
is going to, you think changing the external environment is going to change it, but you're going to take all those neural pathways with you. So if you don't make a new one, that same thing is going to show up in your next job and in your next everything. And maybe not initially, because maybe you'll have people that don't show you the mirror of your own reactivity. And then lo and behold, someone moves in or your boyfriend comes home one day and all of a sudden it's that same trigger. And so, um, the muscles of being able to become aware of like, I am triggered in this moment. This isn't the best time to give a good answer or to make a big change. I really want to get this. That's very universal, but the specific pieces can really um, become highlighted when you look at your own personal drama and where you sabotage yourself the most. Sarah, have you read the book Educated by Tara Westover? I have not. I have it. I'll let you borrow it. So the going back to your deepest root or your your deepest neural pathway and reverting back to that is kind of a theme throughout her book. Um, it was highly recommended um, by uh, some of my best college friends, a couple of my friends in my PhD program. So I was like, oh, all these people are recommending it. I should probably read it. I'm not a super fast reader and I read it in two days. It's just incredible. And I think it really resonates with everything that you're talking about. So I think you'd like it. But Sarah, you've given us so many pearls, but if there's one other pearl that you could give our listener or the one takeaway you would want people to leave with after listening to our episode, what would that be? Um, I think because um, the general public listening to this is probably thinking a lot about their health and trying to learn more about um, the things that you guys are talking about on the other episodes. And um, I think I'd really like to give them the tool of, um, especially the women, budgeting their um, energy You've heard of budgeting money, so you get taxed, and then you have, so you have this gross amount of money, then it's taxed, and you have a net amount, and they call it disposable, and then you pay for your necessities, and then what's left over is discretionary um, income. And what happens with time and energy is, obviously, time, you only have a certain amount, so you can't go over on that. But when you have any kind of injury, if you have any kind of illness, um, it's just really helpful to take the drama out of the, the math part and say, where am I being taxed with this particular injury and this particular um, place in my health? And then whatever's left over, like just pretend that normally it'd be 100, but now I have, you know, a new diagnosis. And so now that takes a lot of energy and time to think about the doctor's appointments and the medicines and go to the therapies. What's left over? And really be kind to themselves about what, how to distribute the last of that energy. Because if you, if you're working on your body so much, and then you've got, you know, family or work or whatever it is, and you don't have any time for just joy and hobbies and things, I just really want people to see that the math of illness or injury can be objective. It can be just a part of who you are and anything that gets eclipsed by that. In other words, whatever things they're not being able to do because of this, instead of making that this tension inside of them or this inability to move forward, to try to recreate and innovate the situation to say, where can I grow? Where can I become more of who I am through this thing, through this diagnosis, through this place? 
and save energy on the back end for really looking at how to still be uniquely you through this process. I think that will, first of all, speed up any kind of healing because it lets go of resistance and then really opens a person up to the present moment, the journey we're on, and then really helps um, people feel like there is no limit to what they can be as long as they're flexible enough to change the flavor of their dream or adapt to the new reality. And I feel like anything that doesn't do that is just prolonging the joy, prolonging the healing, prolonging the, the deep down the satisfaction that one wants to feel when they lay their head on the pillow. So I would say, don't, don't ignore all the minutes and the time and energy you spend with your health. It's a huge part, face it, look at it, you know, be purposeful with how you deal with the stewardship of your body. And then just let that become who you are so that you can keep doing all the things you love. And I'm just certain that people have it within them to have more joy than they've ever had with any old dreams and plans that whatever's happened to you can be for you and an advantage for you as long as you know how to, to accept the hard and face the difficult things on purpose, knowing that, um, a limitless, joyful future is ahead. So Sarah, if people want to connect with you, um, give us all of your information, your website, your email address, anything you're willing to share. How can people get in touch with you? Yes, perfect. Um, my website is www.personalthoughttrainer.com. And my email is Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at personalthoughttrainer.com. On the website, there's... Um, buttons to push to get a free mini session. Everything I do is results first. So if people try a session and they don't get something out of it, they don't have to invest in anything. And hopefully they'll walk away with at least a tool or two. Um, the, the prices of it is kind of like massages. So if they're, if they're wondering kind of what it, what kind of, you know, it, it's, it's an hourly rate, you know, in the 60 to $80 an hour range but I do series of sessions because of the um, work it takes to build awareness first and then start bringing things to work on and then see progress. And so I always do at least six sessions and most of the time I end up doing 12 because by the time people start getting the hang of catching themselves in their triggers and they come back and we talk about it, they want to see progress and they say, um, okay, well that was the first thing I brought to you, but I want to, I really, I didn't realize this could apply to all these other things. And so we, we start bringing in, and like I talked about with Jocelyn, um, the universal tools follow and it's just a new specific situation and they get that momentum. And then my goal is to have people self-coaching by the time they're done so that they have their tools, their toolbox, whatever comes up, they can apply all the formulas and tools to um, empower themselves in their life. That's excellent, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We are so appreciative of you taking time out of your evening. Um, and we're very excited to see all the things you're going to do this year. Yay. I hope to make, start making um, short like videos about this and posting them on my website because I think um, that might be helpful too for people to get little tiny five minute, you know, um, snapshots of different tools and how they apply to, you know, everything from a new diagnosis to like same old, same old diabetes. I'm so sick of this, you know. So um, yeah, I hope to be doing new things this year and I'm excited about it. But thank you so much for um, 
listening to me while I came to physical therapy, but also um, applying your craft that you guys do and blessing people with um, the knowledge of the physiology and really giving them that intellectual background they need as you cheerlead them and become part of their medical team. Um, I feel like that is such a powerful position in a patient's life. So thank you for all you guys do. You're so welcome. All right. Until next time, talk later, Jocelyn. See ya.